0: Hey there, welcome back to our interview with Andre Husni, owner and operator of Jacob Springs Farm in Boulder, Colorado. If you haven't already, check out the first part of this episode before proceeding with this one. In part one, the conversation took us across the world to Zambia, Africa to learn about the Lala people and their unique, in this day and age anyway, way of life. And in part two, we're going to focus on Andre's farm and how he is implementing regenerative grazing practices holistic management, and a strong sense of community to bring about change in ranching and farming.
1: I'd like to circle this back to your farm, what you do there specifically. And we've already talked a little bit about you've seen some positive changes in the landscape. What do you attribute that to?
2: Yeah, so I came to farming with a real passion for livestock and grazing science. I was exposed to Alan Savory, who's a bit of a controversial figure, but there's some real gems there. And I think a lot of times those get overlooked, especially by the academic scientific community. And by the way, Alan Savory grew up in Zimbabwe, which was southern Rhodesia, and did his schooling in northern Rhodesia, which is Zambia. And so his ranching and farming is right there near the people that I work with. Alan Savory is a Zimbabwean ecologist, farmer, and livestock management
1: expert who is best known for his work on regenerative agriculture and holistic management. He was born on September 15, 1935 in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, and grew up on a cattle ranch. Savory earned a degree in biology from the University of Natal in South Africa in 1955 and worked for several years as a research biologist before returning to Rhodesia to manage a game reserve. In the 1960s and 70s, Savory worked on developing a holistic management approach to livestock grazing that aimed to restore degraded grasslands and improve the productivity of ranches. He observed that overgrazing by livestock was a major cause of desertification and ecosystem degradation. He developed a system of planned grazing that involved mimicking the natural grazing patterns of wild herbivores. In the 80s, Savory founded the Center for Holistic Management in Zimbabwe to promote his ideas and train farmers in holistic management practices. He also worked as a consultant for the World Bank and other organizations on land management projects in Africa, the Middle East, and South America. In 2009, Savory founded the Savory Institute, a nonprofit organization based in Boulder, Colorado, that promotes and supports regenerative agriculture and holistic management practices around the world. The Savory Institute works with farmers, ranchers, and communities to improve soil health, restore degraded ecosystems, and promote sustainable food systems.
0: The benefits touted by Savory are that his practices improve soil health by building organic matter, increasing soil water holding capacity, reducing erosion, and improving nutrient cycling, which can lead to more resilient soils. Holistic management is also said to increase biodiversity by increasing grass and plant species that will also support a diverse wildlife population. This all plays into supporting communities, especially rural ones, by promoting opportunities for ranchers and farmers to make a living from the land with a diverse stream of income. Opponents of holistic management have said that it lacks scientific evidence and that the results of its claims aren't there, particularly in large-scale farming. They would also argue that these grazing practices can be detrimental, not beneficial to wildlife populations, as it can put competitive pressure on them. As Andre will tell you, regenerative grazing requires significant management to be effective, which can be time-consuming and expensive for farmers. Holistic management may not be feasible in all ecosystems, particularly in locales with high population density and limited land.
2: So my first passion was to use livestock to regenerate soil and grasslands to create healthy whole ecosystems with livestock as the grazing herbivore in the system. And to do it right outside of Boulder, where it could be seen by thought leaders and Boulder's full of them. And they all go to Whole Foods and they all want good quality food, but they're not generally exposed to agriculture. And so, I wanted to kind of use that as a bridge. But actually, as I settled into farming, my passion sort of shifted to wholism. I actually said, what would it look like if we could recreate an entire food system here? Not just the meat, not just the milk, but, you know, create an entire diet from this environment, and what would that look like, and how can we connect the dots and create a whole community, a whole diet, a whole ecosystem within boundaries, and what would that look like here? How can we create healthy people thriving within a work environment and a community environment on the farm who are making enough money, who are eating really well off the land, and who have a purpose in regenerating the environment around us and feeding the wider community? my goal has kind of shifted from just being grazing specific to being a little bit broader and more holistic. So on top of animal agriculture, so we do meat, beef, and lamb from grazing animals, and we do milk. And those are pretty big financial programs for the farm. Like our raw milk dairy is one of, if not the biggest in the area, definitely the oldest. When I got into it, there were a couple others. They all went under. New ones have started. Are you um,
1: distributing that to stores or nope, is it to It's all... pick
2: up on the farm okay. uh, through a herd share because it's actually currently illegal to sell raw milk in Colorado to the public. Kind of crazy if you think about that. some of the things you can buy legally that <laughs> kind of mess up your health. Cigarettes. Right. And then <laughs> other things. Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. But so we have a herd share, which is kind of a legal loophole and that. And that's a big income generator for the farm. But in addition to the herbivores, we have omnivores, chickens and pigs, and the role of chickens and pigs in our food system is to deal with food waste. Mm -hmm. And we have tons of food waste in our community. You know, here at CSU, I wonder how many trash cans slash dumpsters full of food the cafeterias produce every single day. So much. (laughs) And think about how many pigs and how many chickens could be making bacon and eggs out of that waste. (laughs) And that's actually really high quality because when you raise animals on a diverse diet, the taste, the flavor is improved. If you just fill up a bin with bland Mm -hmm. field corn, the Mm -hmm. meat tastes the same way, the eggs taste the same way, collecting food waste, and we just get a tiny fraction of it. If there were systems in place, if there was like transportation and storage and containers and Mm -hmm. like some mechanization for lifting up. 100-pound barrels off the back of a restaurant and putting it in my truck, yeah. I, we could do a lot more of that, yeah. right? And I personally think the omnivores, they have a really strong immune system, so they can eat food that is a little bit past its expiration mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. But, you know, industrial agriculture, what we do is we exploit their immune systems and put them in CAFOs and confined feeding operations in big barns where the air is bad and they're standing in their own feces. So we're exploiting that feature. That they have to just feed them more corn out of the exploitative grain production system. So then we also have the other waste stream that we feed mainly to chickens is from our grain programs. We have a grain program. When we grow organic wheat, we're not spraying for herbicides for weeds. So when we harvest with the combine, we have a lot of weed seeds in there. We have incredible biodiversity even in our grain fields. And that's fine because we can sort it out in the grain cleaning process. And when we pull in like literal tons of insects. Yeah. When we go through the field with a combine, those insects, they dry out and they die and dry out in the grain bin. And then we clean and sort the grain and we separate them. And then we feed all the weed seeds and all the grasshopper parts to the chickens and they love it. <laughs> yeah. and, and they need great. protein. I can imagine yeah, <laughs> they totally need protein. And I don't understand the marketing, like, oh, vegetarian fed hens. Like, you ever see chickens? Like, have you ever seen them? What they do? They're scratching. Like, what are they scratching for? Do you think there's some... Bugs, worms. Like... Yeah. It's not for like the corn you accidentally dropped in your garden. They got buried. They're like looking for bugs. And they have these eyes that are perfectly suited to like see these little wigglies that we don't see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're eating pounds of them. So then we can use the chickens to clean up that mess and to make good use of it, of all that biomass. And then we take them out into the fields in mobile hen houses and follow the cattle. If we feed the cattle, in the milking cows in the milking parlor, if we give them a handful of like some hard amidosperm sperm seed, like millet or corn, that we actually soak sometimes our own corn or our own, and they'll eat it, and it won't fully digest. It'll go out the back end, so the tail of the cow goes up, the chickens start running. So then they take that <laughs> cow disgusting. patty, and they spread it out. And then instead of having a little dead spot where the cow patty dries out, It blesses the entire environment. And then the the grass grows like incredibly. Like when we take a new field over and we start to do this, you'll see the fertility, like this dark green mountain. And you think, why is there a hill right there? And you go, there's no hill. The ground's flat. But that's where there was a poop. (laughs) The 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 chicken's like, yeah. So great. It's not just reductive like NPK. Mm. It's also biology. There's also like from the gut of the cow, there's microbes and they're reseeding populations Mm -hmm. in the ground because the soil is exposed to UV light. And it's exposed to really cold temperatures and really hot temperatures, especially where the vegetation has suffered for one reason or another, mainly related to mismanagement by humans. And so then when the cow's stomach was just like this perfect host that's like perfectly warm and perfectly moist for the microbes to live in to repopulate that. Mm -hmm. And so it's just this great natural system. So we have the herbivores, we have the omnivores, we have the grain system, which provides us like kind of bulk calories that are stored easily and that can be consumed year round. And thankfully we have such a great community in Boulder where there are customers for this. So we, we have a bakery that we work with and they take our grains. They give us a good price because we have this unique place that we live where there's pretty much no wheat fields to the West where the prevailing winds come from, there's very little glyphosate in our rain. Mm. But to the east, if you go 10 miles, there's lots of wheat fields and a lot of them are conventional mm. and they're using glyphosate. And yeah. so the glyphosate contamination in the rain is higher. So we're It'd actually be hard to lucky. have
3: an organic farm yeah. in
2: like East. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you're surrounded by wheat fields, you're gonna get cross contamination. Yeah.
1: Glyphosate is an herbicide that is commonly used in agriculture to control weeds. It was first introduced in the 70s and is now one of the most widely used herbicides in the world. Glyphosate has been the subject of much controversy in recent years, with some studies suggesting that it may have harmful effects on human health and the environment. Some of the potential risks associated with glyphosate exposure include an increased risk of cancer, reproductive problems, and damage to beneficial insects such as bees. As you might imagine, if glyphosate gets on organic fields, it can pose a threat to the organic certification of the field. Organic certification requires that crops are grown without the use of synthetic pesticides, including glyphosate. If it's detected on an organic field, the crop may lose its organic certification, which can result in significant financial losses for the farmer. Additionally, glyphosate can persist in the soil for long periods of time, potentially contaminating future crops. You're grazing, your grazing practices like do you graze all of the livestock together or is it just certain ones together? It sounds like that at least the chickens and, and pigs are kind of following the cattle around.
2: Yeah, we're actually limited a little bit by some of our landowners who want this or want that. And mm-hmm. so we can't generalize. So we have to work around some constraints. Like the city of Boulder is really reluctant to allow pigs. Mm-hmm. We did pigs on city land as a remediation for teasel, which is a noxious weed that's come in from yeah, Europe. we talked and- with Eric about that. <laughs> and Eric fairly shot up. Yeah, I <laughs> actually remember that because I listened to your podcast. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, so teasel, it's kind of bitter. They don't really love the taste of it in the summer, but in the winter, for some reason, mm-hmm. they will dig up those roots. And so <laughs> we put pigs on teasel, and it was great. And they, the city loved it. But then there's still, like, there was concern. So then we're like, well, okay, can we do this yeah. more? And then they have internal conversations. What were
3: some of the concerns from those conversations?
2: They're worried about were? ground nesting birds. So right. they were, what if the pigs get out, and what if they go over and find a bird's nest and eat the eggs? They're worried about disturbing of soil because pigs do like to disturb soil in some cases. And we've learned a lot about how to control that. So if you give them more space, they'll make a small wallow. But if you give them less space, they'll actually till the whole thing up. So there's a certain square footage per day that you can give pigs and get them to till. And then another where they'll just dust bathe in certain places. Okay. But there's concerns about like vegetation and disturbing soil and stuff like that.
1: So I'm always picturing like you've got this farm it's not just all the acreages right there around you know, mm-hmm. all the buildings. You're renting other lands as well?
2: Or? Yeah. So everything but six acres is rented. Okay. 200 acres is the largest contiguous piece. Okay. Of which 170 is the city of Boulder and 30 acres are adjacent private land that we also rent. And we need to have the dairy cows close to the dairy barn because mm-hmm. every day we have to walk them in, milk mm-hmm. them, and walk them back out to pasture. So that's like the highest priority for that property. And then we take the beef cows and sheep and take them to other properties and graze them elsewhere as much as possible to kind of take pressure off of that piece. Do like paddocks or like rotation? Yeah, we do want as much rotation as possible. It turns out, you know, until somebody invents the perfect grazing collar, defenseless, <laughs> you know, animal control system, yeah. which somebody needs to do don't the dogs act as that oh you know like you, the know, herding dogs you can keep, do you know? that like with the dogs but you need to be there to tell the dogs yeah, what true. you want or maybe an algorithm could do it so but <laughs> until that happens <laughs> we really have to rely on fences yeah and electric fences are problematic that technology hasn't changed much in people since are always the trying to be on them <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> Yeah, so they're always going down and then the cows will know it before you do, and then they're on the road, and then somebody's, you know, could die. So that's like really serious. So we end up, you know, maintaining a lot of fences. But then when you don't have land tenure somewhere, if a landowner is like, Yeah, you can use it this year, and then we'll see about next year, how much am I incentivized to like go spend a week fixing up their fences? So that can be a challenge. And so we have to set up electric fence. So I would love if we had lots and lots of really small paddocks, but a regenerative farmer told me one time, if you can't sustain it with your level of labor that you can put in, then it's not sustainable. Sure. So there might be some ecological goal where you say the ideal is a half an acre paddock and we set up a new one twice a day. I can't do that. I don't have enough time to do that. So we have to make compromises. Mm -hmm. And when that person told me that, It gave me like a sigh of relief because I'm a person who wants to shoot for ideals. But then in reality, like sometimes we have to leave cows in the same place for a week, two weeks. That's actually still a lot better than continuous grazing. And it depends on the time of year. So sometimes we bring them into a field. We don't put any subdividing fencing. They graze that for two weeks and then we move to another field. Sometimes just depending on the availability of the infrastructure and the water, we can subdivide it closer to the ideal. On that main contiguous piece, we have land tenure there. So it's worth investing. So we've set up permanent electric fences. So these fences are on T-posts. So they're not just like bending over in the wind and falling down and they're on really good alignments and we can use them season after season without a lot of extra labor. So that means we have a lot more paddocks there. And it turns out with regenerative grazing, it's really all about how many different paddocks. That way you can really fine tune how long an animal's on a piece of ground.
3: Also, I feel like with rotational grazing, if you do slip up and say you can't move your animals as often as you like, you could do a lot of damage to the grassland. So it's almost worth not putting so much pressure on moving them if you don't know you can handle it.
2: Yeah, it's crazy because everybody knows the narrative that animals cause desertification, and that is true. And you can damage ground that way, but they also are the key to reversing it. And it's all comes down to management. And so just like you say, you have to know how much resources we have of in terms of labor to move animals. Be nice if the market gave us an incentive, like by saying, Hey, I only buy regenerative beef. So that's a little more expensive and I'm happy to pay for it because I know it's doing good things right. for the environment. And yeah. so that gives us a little premium to support like the extra work we take. That's not really in place yet. But we have to make compromise, and we have to make choices, but you also have to remember what we're doing this for and that's about changing yeah from what i was reading like preparing for this it seemed like
1: moderation was key so like where would you put the grazing intensity it's like mm-hmm. light moderate or intensive but i wouldn't imagine it's intensive for my farm yeah
2: it varies and actually you can't just put it on a schedule and run it you have to keep your eyes on things And make flexible decisions. And that's part of being holistic. And and because, you know, animals are actually incredibly sophisticated. If there were wolves in the system, the cattle would be bunched really tight. And so we try to do that with fences. But if there were wolves, they would do it themselves. And they would move on according to their own algorithms based on their fear of predation, the availability of water, the quality of the vegetation, how fast it's growing, you know, what else is available in the environment. And it turns out that they actually have a really good program that they run. Their algorithm is really, really good Mm -hmm. when they're pressured by predators. So we're trying to kind of mimic that. And there's a lot of variability in that. So in the spring right now, we try to move animals really fast and not hit things really quick. You know, that's what they would do this time of year because the spring grasses are tender and they're sweet. You're grazing the roots essentially in spring. So the cows move through quickly. So we'll try to move them really fast at this time of year, not really graze very heavily. But in the fall, when plants are starting to go dormant, getting ready for winter, and they have a lot of mass, they have a lot of vegetative biomass, we can linger a little bit longer because those plants are already starting to go dormant. So we let them hit it a little harder, and then we change it up. So if we hit this field hard last spring, let's lighten up this spring and do things a little differently. And then there's so much we don't understand. Dealing with uncertainty is something that science doesn't really prepare you that well for. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what do we do when we don't know? Um, So we can't go to the research. There's none. (laughs) Right. So you look and you go, oh, wow. Why did the sedges do really well last year in areas that we had really heavily grazed the year before? I imagine your uh, journal keeping skills have to be on point. Well, you know, I I sort of am not that good (laughs) at that. I wish I were. I just kind of have it in my head. Yeah. That's not great because it's not repeatable. and my memory isn't perfect, and I also can't like download it to other people. Yeah, <laughs> so probably one day we're we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, yep. So you touched on an area of growth.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking of labor, how much help do you have on your farm currently?
2: There's nine adults okay. that work on the farm, and it's mostly work trade, and they're a member of community, and so they live on the farm, and they do the more repeatable tasks like milking. You know, I milk today with my son because we have a health challenge with one of the cows and that makes milking a little bit harder. So they call me in for that. But I don't milk on a normal day because there's things that only I can do because I have more experience than most people on the farm. Yeah. So some people are more in maintenance. Some people are in feeding the animals. Some people are milking. So we have different teams and support each other. But, you know, it's really nice to do it in community yeah. because farming is one of those things that can really wear you down if you have to do it every day by yourself.
3: I'm asking for a friend. What is your best advice to give a farmer to promote longevity physically and mentally?
2: You know, one thing is build community, get to know other farmers. We help each other out. Like, I'm so happy when somebody asks me for help because I've been there and I'll probably be there. And so like another farm down the road was like, hey, we're going out of town for two days. We've got everything covered, except what if babies get stuck when there's a birth? Can you be on call? I probably won't have to do anything because they're only gone for a couple of days and it'll probably be fine. But if it isn't, they'll call me. And that makes me feel good because now I implicitly have permission to call them when I go out of town. Right. <laughs> have each so, other's back. Right. Yeah. So build community.
1: I want to take a quick second to reflect on the type of community that we're talking about here to give just one really good example. I've experienced something similar on another farm in North Carolina. The folks in this area were really close from what I could tell. There were quite a few farms that were involved with each other. And it was clear that they had a larger impact on the surrounding communities as well. I remember they would participate in crop mobs or basically a planting, pruning, weeding, and or harvest party. Volunteers from other farms would show up at one when they needed help. And this would extend to other farming and sort of permaculture activities as well. And they would all bring food and drinks for a potluck afterwards. And not only did this bind the community together around where I stayed, but every place nearby, because like Alyssa said, they have each other's backs.
2: There's this like American myth of like the loan, whatever. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing is really work on your business plan. There's got to be the right balance between following your passion, which is the stuff that you do that's really fun, and making enough money to survive in the system that we all wish was different, but (laughs) it's not. So work on your business plan and figure out how much effort do you need to give to the things that really make you money so that you can keep doing this trim where you can your expenses and your expectations and think it out because like I got into this in a burst of enthusiasm and optimism and I did some planning <laughs> which I'm glad I did but my advice for younger people is you know think about that come up with your business plan run it by other farmers and they're going to go you're going to do 2 acres of what <laughs> like I've, somebody came to me like we're thinking of starting small. We're just going to do two acres of vegetables. What? I've been doing this 14 years. I won't do more than an acre. I mean, I did more than that at one point. You killed me. Work smarter, not harder. Right. Well, unfortunately, you kind of have to do both. (laughs) But if you can work even smarter, then you might not have to work as hard. So, Quick
1: quick sidebar on that. Are your veggies mostly for just subsistence for people that work?
2: That has been the case. The great thing about the vegetable program is if you're feeling overwhelmed, you can set that down for a year if you have other things going on. So I have diversification. This year, I've got three people that are specializing in the garden. And so we're kind of ramping that back up again. And it's always easy to move those veggies when you have them, at least for me, because I have customers that are coming in for milk, for meat, for butter, for eggs. And they're like, oh, squash. It's a nice one-stop shop. Right. Then my last piece of advice is just go easy on yourself. It's really easy to burn out by overdoing it. you got to have rest. You said work smarter, not harder. It's like if you're working seven days a week, 12-hour days, you're not going to make it. I know you think you can't take a day off. You have to. Your farm will take everything if you don't tie it down. Find your rest day and make it holy because you cannot function if you're on every day.
3: And there's always something to do or fix or improve on a farm. So so
2: it's not like you can
3: ever get done with your to-do list. Right,
1: that's true. (laughs) That last point is just a really good like advice for life. Yeah. Like when I was in school and I was just like, I got to keep studying forever. And it was like 14 hours a day. And like, it actually <laughs> and it degrades
2: your ability to keep. To even like
1: you know, take in new information and process what you have taken in already. And right. so it's like, you have to have that day
2: of just turning off. The, I did the anyway. thing you might need to do <laughs> the best to get through that test is actually go take a nap. And then the other thing is like, failure is the norm in nature. Everything is on the table for failure, you know? So like expect it. I was talking casually to some people that weren't farmers and I was like, yeah, that crop failed. And they go, Oh, don't say failed. That's really harsh. And I'm like, (laughs) sounds like it's put that crop down. (laughs) It's fine. It's like just things don't always work out. That's okay. Like, not every baby's gonna be born alive. And it's sad and it hurts, but it's like you can't let it kill you.
3: So if you weren't doing what you're doing on the farm, what do you think your career would be in a, another universe?
2: <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. It wasn't like a grand plan. It was like a hope mm-hmm. that I could be here. And I'm really happy for that. But I had other hopes that like didn't work out too. So I don't know, I could have probably ended up being a software engineer and hating my life. And I probably was like enough engineering and linear minded that I could do well at that. And probably I could have made more money if I did that. But I think my mental health I don't know if that would have been good for me.
3: Speaking of history, do you want to tell us about how you came to the United States?
2: Oh, yeah. So I was actually born in Beirut, Lebanon. When I was a baby, there was a war going on until I was a child and left, and it continued after.
0: So I figured it'd be important to give a little background on the Lebanese Civil War, which was a complex and devastating conflict that lasted from 1975 to 1990. It was sparked by a mixture of political, religious, and economic factors, including tensions between the country's Christian and Muslim communities, Palestinian refugees, and Syrian and Israeli intervention. It resulted in an estimated 120,000 fatalities and an exodus of almost 1 million people from Lebanon. Lebanon is a country of diverse religious and ethnic groups, including Muslims, Christians, Druze, and others. Prior to the war, the country was divided into roughly equal parts between Christians and Muslims. However, rising tensions between these groups fueled in part by demographic changes, economic inequality, and political rivalries. This created a powder keg that was just waiting to explode. Another major factor that contributed to the conflict was an influx of Palestinian refugees into Lebanon following the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. By the 1970s, there were tens of thousands of Palestinian refugees living in camps throughout the country, and many of them were involved in an armed struggle against Israel. This created additional friction with Lebanese authorities and other groups in the country, as well as increased pressure on the already strained infrastructure and resources of Lebanon.
1: The political and economic instability of the 70s also contributed to the outbreak of war. In the early 1970s, the Lebanese economy was booming, driven in large part by the country's position as a financial and commercial hub in the Middle East. However, the onset of the 73 oil crisis and the global economic recession that followed led to a decline in the Lebanese economy, causing widespread unemployment, inflation, and social unrest. Political corruption, inefficiency, and sectarianism also hampered efforts to address these issues and exacerbated existing tensions. Against this backdrop, the Lebanese Civil War began in 1975, sparked by a series of political and military incidents that quickly spiraled out of control. The war was characterized by a series of shifting alliances and conflicts between various factions, including leftist and nationalist groups, Christian and Muslim militias, and foreign powers such as Syria and Israel. The conflict was marked by widespread violence, including massacres, bombings, and other atrocities and caused the deaths of an estimated 150,000 people, as well as displacement and suffering for countless others. In the end, the war was brought to a close by a series of agreements negotiated under the auspices of the Arab League, which called for the disarmament of militias, the withdrawal of foreign forces, and the establishment of a new political system based on power sharing between Lebanon's various religious communities. Despite some ongoing political and social tensions, Lebanon has remained largely peaceful since the end of the civil war although it continues to face numerous challenges, including political instability, economic hardship, and regional conflict.
2: So I ended up in Boulder by the time I was in third grade on a house that overlooks my farm <laughs> now <laughs> I grew up in. Haven't moved very far. No, nope, not since I got here. That it was a huge privilege to like leave a war zone and end up in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. And now my son goes to the same school that I went to. Have you and the same so teachers? My, yeah, actually, Mr. Spear.
3: Shout out, Mr. Spear.
2: He was good for me. And when is he retiring, Ezra? Oh, okay. He's retiring this year. My son Ezra's in the studio and he doesn't have a mic. (laughs) Speaking of, we should uh, get him on.
0: Yeah, Ezra, would you come answer some questions for us? So Andre is not only a great farmer, but he's also a great father. And his son Ezra was sitting in the studio with us the day we recorded this interview. We wanted to ask him a few questions and get his perspective of life on the farm.
3: How old are you, first of all? 11. And what's your favorite part about living on a farm? It's just so cool to be able to take care of all this life and just be able to not just live in a house with a tiny backyard. Boring. (laughs) (laughs) You know what you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a farmer. Cool. You're going to take over the farm? (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Heck yeah.
1: What's your favorite thing to do on the farm?
3: Taking care of the animals do you like living with a whole bunch of people? Yeah, I was going to ask about the community. Living in a How big is community? community? Sometimes not, but I like living in a community with lots of other people. Yeah. Okay, I have one last question for you. What's your favorite food? What did Something you enjoy you... this morning? Oh, sausage.
1: Yeah.
3: Cool, Ezra. We'll talk to you in about 10 years when you have your own farm.
1: Yes. <laughs> we'll have you
3: back. Okay. Thank you. Yeah,
1: thanks for coming on. <laughs> Anybody ever done any research or anything with your farm?
2: Yeah, we're part of a really big study. They're billing it as the largest scientific experiment in human history. But also, I wouldn't hold myself up as an ideal. I've done a lot of experimenting and certain things have really worked out well. So, if you look at some of my earliest fields and you look at the field next to them or across the street, they look amazing. Overall, I would say a very positive trend. But I haven't pursued maximizing anything because I've been holistic in my approach. So, We're a society that's extremely linear. We value logical processes, reductive thinking models. And reductive thinking is essentially when we talk about optimizing things Mm -hmm. or if we talk about a farm that is efficient, we have to be defining our terms with that because when you optimize one thing, given like a limited resource, Mm -hmm. you're turning all the other knobs down. And I've heard statements like, American agriculture is the most efficient. Well, what is it efficient at? Fuel efficient? Because right, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's mean. not true. <laughs> we use tons of fuel and I know African farmers that don't use any fuel. Yield efficient? Yeah. Does that mean we produce more yield per acre? That's not true either. American agriculture is not have the highest yields per acre in the world. If you want those, you got to look at India or Japan where they're somewhat land limited, but they have a lot more labor and they have just as much capital in Japan as we do we use a lot of capital we use a lot of land extensive land we use a lot of energy we use a lot of chemistry so how are we efficient well we actually it turns out american agriculture is efficient in terms of labor utilization yeah mm-hmm. so we produce more food per farmer but not more food per acre and certainly not more variety right and the production is measured in like tonnage of commodities generally rather than like micronutrients or flavor
1: or the cultural or societal impacts of these agricultural systems
2: right so we can get in the same tunnel vision when it comes to ecological things too so if we're looking at regenerative okay so how are we going to define that well it could be a lot of things but it seems like the one that seems most salient most of the time is carbon so if that's your metric you can play to that metric and you could do that at the detriment of other things and that's the thing about being holistic is so we can maximize soil carbon at the expense of water overuse, right? Water use or endangered species. Well, it oh. goes back to how you were talking about how do you define
1: efficiency? And it really depends you know, on what metric you're measuring and these scientific methods kind mm-hmm. of reducing something down, distilling it down to like one little part of the whole that yeah. is not necessarily representative of the whole and picture. And that
2: may be a really important factor. So for me, I've never really tried to fine tune one factor. I'm not aiming at one thing. I'm sure I've sequestered a lot of carbon, especially Mm -hmm. now that I'm managing 450 acres. But I don't know if I would put myself up as like the person that sequestered the most carbon per acre. Probably not because I'm aiming at a lot of different things. I'm trying to be holistic. And that means I hope to sequester carbon. I hope to produce really good tasting food that's also really nutrient dense. That's also in some way affordable at minimal impact to water systems and Mm -hmm. native species. and It's a lot to juggle. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you try to measure any one of those things that I would be exemplary. And in our culturally derived reductive mindset, it's easy to kind of put one number in the placeholder for that. And I want to just kind of recognize that that's actually not the whole story.
3: And if more small operations like yours thought that way, I think we would All be in a better place, but most farms don't think holistically like you do.
1: Yeah. I personally believe that if it was more smaller scale operations like that, I think that would be more beneficial.
2: Yeah. So, my vision is actually to kind of create a network of farms that's interrelated that all use the same resource base. So, I actually don't want to be the only farmer on my farm. I would love to be able to give my grain program to like a junior farmer and mentor that person into creating that as their sustainable business. That interconnects with the chicken program, with the vegetable program. If we had three or four different units, and that's kind of the direction I'm I'm trying to go, I have a big team, you know, nine people now. We're expanding to 11 this summer. And many of them I'm mentoring, and I've launched several people into their own farms, but I'd like to actually launch them into management of parts of my farm. So I could have a dairy manager that runs essentially an independent farm with the same land base with the same resource and capital base, with a labor pool in common, with equipment that we have in common. So, you know, hey, I need to use the track. Have any more openings this summer? Yeah, come on <laughs> over. There's always room for one more. So that's kind of my vision. And I actually think this model might be the thing that I have maybe to say the most. This vision of the independent farmer is deficient. And what we need to do is create clusters of businesses, of people working together, investors, acquire land and find a group. You know, probably the minimum is probably around 12 people, and then assign each of these people a role. So we have the livestock program, we have the dairy program, we have the grains program, we have the vegetable program. In different contexts, you could leave some of those out. And you might have a butchery, you might have a bakery, you might have a grain. A candlestick maker. Yeah, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick (laughs) maker. If you had bees, you could totally do that, right? And then all of these businesses kind of work together in the ways that make sense, share that land base, uh, basically become an ecosystem because here's the resource, it's actually the customer. So if we can serve the high-end customer with not just of 1% of their food budget by being a big wheat producer but actually take over like 50, 90% of their food budget by being the place they go to, the go-to place for meat, milk, eggs, dairy, grains, bread, cupcakes, mushrooms, jam, Mm. cider, vinegar, everything but the toilet paper. Because the person goes to the farmer's market, and then they get in their Tesla, and they drive to Costco, (laughs) and they get a big cart, and they check out for hundreds of dollars of like industrial food. So what I wanna see is that the local food system, the regenerative food system, can replace at least some of those trips to Costco. So we can produce the bulk calories, we can produce the fiber, Let's have local wool and socks that are from regenerative pastures that people can see and appreciate and enjoy. Oh, I thought you meant like fiber like food. I'm like, that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We need fiber. <laughs> I guess we know something about your thing. Uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of the thing that to, I'd like to really contribute is how is there a business model of making this happen? Because like, Alyssa, what you're trying to do, I have a lot of respect for you. are an independent farmer. You're, but what if you were part of a team where you're resourced? you actually had like a tractor that you could all use. You had a person on the team whose job was maybe maintaining the tractor because you have to wear all these hats as a farmer and that's just not realistic. So if you could suddenly start with this team, with this resource base, including the investors, right? Because most farmers have to be their own investor on some level. And, and take out loans. That's hard. And it takes you years to get started. And A lot of times you fail on the way because you wouldn't have enough capital. So if this could be a model, it could be a business model as well as sort of like this is an ideal that we have these little community farms. Well, that, it's you know.
3: beneficial to the community and the individual if you're making businesses that people have creative freedom over. That's what people are really lacking in their yeah. lives. And then you're creating a local successful economy that provides services for what people need. And, and doing so, it with
2: good food and services. Right. So a local food system. Yeah. Basically being able to replicate that. That's kind of my thing that I've thought through the most and maybe have gotten the farthest with that I'd like to see that take off.
3: Now just run for mayor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't want me.
3: <laughs> Anything exciting coming up in the near future for you or your farm?
2: Yeah. So we're about to open our farm store. Ooh. Nice. Which, I mean, we kind of have a farm store with some random things in it. And that's where everybody picks up their meat and their milk and stuff. But we're actually bringing it all together this year with a beautiful retail space where you can get everything except toilet paper. Uh, but maybe some, <laughs> Come can- on. Maybe some candlesticks. Maybe <laughs> we need to get Just the candlestick use some We have an opening for a candlestick maker. <laughs> right. That was a great joke. I like I'm that. in. <laughs> um, but yeah, so have tinctures. But what our goal is to, you know, to showcase everything. We've got yeah. our meat, our eggs, our milk all in one place. Like right now, we operate on a lot of subscription models. So you sign up in advance and then you just come and pick up. But what we'd like to do is make it a little bit more user friendly and bring more people in who aren't ready to sign up for a thousand dollar CSA share for meat every six weeks for a year. But they can come in and become members and then pick up a la carte. Right.
3: And then they get to be a part of the experience and get connected to where their food comes from. So I think it's a beautiful idea.
2: Yeah. And then the other cool thing that's on the horizon, more farm dinners. And we've got some chefs we're working with and they're coming in using all of our ingredients. Oh, I should hook you up with my brother. He's a chef. Oh, yeah. Get (laughs) him him to come out and uh, just visit and do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's fun. And it's like this rediscovery of the idea of terroir. Yeah. What does this place taste like?
3: Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. We my really pleasure. appreciate it. This
2: has been awesome. I love thank you guys.
3: You can come back anytime.
2: <laughs> thank you. Keep up the good work.
1: This has been an illuminating and exciting episode to record. And we thank Andre for taking the time to share his story with us. It's our pleasure to bring you this content. We've received a lot of positive feedback so far. And that prompts us to expand our little community that we've been cultivating over the last year. Fresh ideas and collaboration are key to a functioning community. Reach out with any suggestions or projects you want to work on. We'd love to hear from you. And if you feel like you can, we have a Patreon and buy me a coffee and would be eternally grateful for your support. And we're currently working on getting some merch and perks up for continuing supporters. We totally understand if you can't, but please consider leaving us a review or rating on your listening platform of choice. We appreciate your interest and support of the ideas and practices we're trying to make available to a broader audience and we're excited to keep this momentum up. Thanks for listening.